my name is David Brooks. I'm a columnist for the New York Times. Uh, it's my first time in this building. I haven't seen so many liberals since I left the New York Times Bureau a few blocks away. Uh, I, I didn't know I was uh, introducing Matt. Matt is an old friend of mine. I know him from, uh, well, years ago, Clinton, and uh, worked at McKinsey, I believe, and is the host of Left, Right, and Center, a columnist. Uh, I think you write for Fortune. Uh, I apologize for the haphazard manner of this introduction, but I, uh, I assume you all know Matt, and that's why you're here. A prominent public intellectual of economic and domestic policy interest. Now, I'm just going to uh, question him for a few minutes, and I'm going to start by asking about him, his own intellectual evolution. And I brought a book he came out with a few years ago called The 2% Solution. This came out in 2003. And one starts, as one does in Washington, by looking at the blurbs on the back of this book. And there's a po very positive blurb from a guy named Paul Krugman, uh, also, but balanced nicely by a positive blurb from a guy named David Brooks. There's a positive blurb from a woman named Barbara Ehrenreich, but also a very positive blurb from a conservative writer named David Frum. A very nice balance there. Uh, and then David Gergen has a very positive blurb, and I think he balances himself. Uh, and then uh, a very positive blurb from John McCain. And Matt is the host of Left, Right, and Center, and is the center, I think, of Left, Right, and Center. Uh, and so this blurb action here on the back represents um, Matt as the centrist. Now, I, I think this book, this new book, which I think has a more handsome cover, uh, uh, is not a centrist book. And I detect a movement, uh, I would, if you want to label it, a, a movement to the left, but a movement that is not uh, unrepresentative of a movement a lot of people have taken. And among the economists you rely on in this book is Alan Blinder from Princeton, who's also, one would say, moved maybe a bit to the left over the last few years. Uh, so the first question I had for you was to, am I right in perceiving this? Uh, has, have your views changed over the past few years? Has the economy and globalization changed your perspective? And how could you describe that? Um, I guess I don't, I don't feel like I've changed much. I think, you know, I, I usually come at these, I, I usually come at these questions as kind of a, I think of myself as an e economically rational liberal or as a, uh, a radical centrist, whatever cliche you want to use. On Colbert the other night when I did that, uh, when, I, when they'd said somebody described me as a radical centrist, he goes, isn't that sort of like being a take-no-prisoners pussy? Uh, gives, you, gives you a small taste of the experience uh, that it was like. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, think, I think that the, um, the big challenges we face actually require us to do things that aren't, don't fit into neat ideological boxes. And so, you know, I clearly have a very progressive desire to promote opportunity and security in a, you know, in a, in a rapidly changing economy with all these new challenges. And, you know, while, while, the, while I may be arguing for more bolder moves even than in the 2% solution, I'm also calling on a lot of business leadership to help implement this and try and change the minds of a lot of, uh, capitalists, really, because I think we're, we're at those, one of those moments that if we're going to uh, update American capitalism for the 21st century and do the kind of things that Obama, just in a speech a few minutes ago, was talking about to sort of preserve and build and renew our society, um, we need capitalism to work better. And so 
I guess I don't, I don't see it as left or right exactly, but, um, but, uh, but you may be right. Note that the, the word pussy has never been used at a Heritage Foundation panel discussion. <laughs> so I think already I notice a change in atmosphere. This uh, is the cultural degradation that comes yeah. as the, with the liberal ascendancy, right? Uh, now, but, but you do in the book, and maybe you believe this before, though I, I, it was certainly less obvious to me, you identify some pretty fundamental problems with the marketplace. And I think the most fundamental, in many ways, it's in the middle of the book, but it's some way at the core the idea that merit doesn't lead to success? Uh, well, one of the dead ideas I talk about in the book is the idea that, um, that money follows merit. And I actually think that's an idea that most average people don't hold. I think average people think the system is rigged. And I think that the educated class, you know, sort of people who go to think tank seminars and, uh, you know, ha hang around uh, rooms like this, I think one of the most cherished myths of the educated class is that market capitalism is a meritocracy economically. In other words, that people end up economically where they deserve to. And I think that the rise of what I call the undeserving ultra-rich in the book, the, you know, the, this group at the very tippy top that is pulling away from the rest, not through um, you know, the, the rewards of the free market. I mean, nobody, nobody uh, and certainly I don't, begrudge Bill Gates or Steve Jobs their wealth for the fantastic innovations and, uh, and contributions they make to society. But you can't open the paper nowadays without, uh, without reading about a CEO who's essentially presided over the decline of a company walking away with $100 million. You've got the subprime mortgage bankers who peddled this junk. Uh, most of them retired at the country club now with $50 million while the country is sort of uh, going to spend years cleaning up the mess. And I think the ubiquity of this undeserving sliver of the rich, I'm not saying you know, I'm capitalist, I'm pro-wealth, but the, I think it's very demoralizing for democracy and for capitalism and can create a backlash. And I think the, the, where, the real awakening is among what I call the lower uppers because as you know, the, the, the folks who sort of punched every ticket, aced their SATs, went to the best colleges, and then sort of rose in the professions, uh, and kind of assume, because that's been sort of the American ethic, that then they will deservedly get the, 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 the lion's share of the best material rewards American society has to offer. I think as they look up now at this group above them and say, uh, well, they're not meritorious. Um, in many ways, they're corrupt, and there's something, something wrong. The system's rigged. I think that that's going to awaken a new empathy in this group, which is not just, I'm arguing, a sociological curiosity. I mean, you don't want to, it's not like you can feel the lower upper's pain. They're still doing better than 99% of anyone who ever walked on the planet. But I think that, you know, it's a couple million people who hold influential positions in business, the professions, the media, government. And as their empathy is awakened to the fact that, um, that people don't end up economically where they deserve to, and when they look down the ladder below them at the masses of people today in American society who are being buffeted by economic forces beyond their control, they'll become a constituency for the kind of changes I think we need in healthcare and pension security, et cetera. Uh, well, let's, let's, start with the, let's start with the lower uppers for a minute before we go on. And uh, I think the lower uppers, you would say, are lawyers making a mere 100 or 200,000 uh, doctors, senior think tank fellows, perhaps. Uh, with radio shows on public television. Uh, and of course, we're all acutely sensitive to the pain of these people. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've always thought the most unhappy people on earth are people worth $10 million, because they hang around people worth $100 million, and they do not have the private plane. 
when they go to Europe, they have to carry their luggage as opposed to having it at their apartment already in Paris. And that's a subset of compassion I feel for. Uh, but, but first of all, it does raise, I want to get to the broader issue later, but the, it does raise an interesting demographic issue that uh, politically, and I think you're really talking about a political group, people with graduate degrees, people in LA where you live or people around here, the, there has been a sharp shift just politically between people who are professionals and managers. And professionals are overwhelmingly Democratic and managers are Republican. Mm -hmm. And it's that professional class that created the, the, uh, the really financial base for Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Now, is that essentially what you're talking about, a movement by those people to the Democratic side yeah. or, I, I or just a political I, shift? I, I haven't made that whole link yet. Um, and I think, I think you're smarter on the sort of political dynamics of that uh, in terms of the actual interest groups. But I, I guess I just think that this brewing discontent, which is, again, strange in one sense because these people are doing very well by any measure, um, is not unlike what Richard Hofstadter, and I talk about this, it, the, the progressive movement uh, was born in part through the kind of status anxiety of professionals who felt disenfranchised by the early the Rockefellers and the, you know, all, all these folks who sort of seemed to come out of nowhere and then lorded above them. And I think that um, just like uh, the revolt of the lower uppers last time helped give birth to the progressive era, I think we're in a moment where this may be part of what, right. uh, what you're seeing in the actual political dynamics. But it's also, you know, obviously the whole book is not just about the, uh, the you know, the angst of this small <laughs> segment of very well-off people. Um, but it's, it's part of a theme uh, that, I, that I try and stitch through a number of things where the, I think we've overestimated the power of the individual to shape his own economic destiny at this moment in the history of American capitalism, if that's not too grand, and that, that we need a rebalancing then between the role of government and the role of uh, you know, private citizens or the individual in making sure that uh, we have a decent society with the kind of opportunity and security we would expect from a wealthy country that was trying to do right. Right. Well, let's uh, talk about that, the role of the individual. I, the one area I do differ, you said people outside, people in regular America, or if you want to put it that way, believe that, don't believe that individual destiny controls, that their individual destiny is controlled by their own power. And I think you're wrong about that. I think the evidence is overwhelmingly of the polling data. People, Americans, unlike Europeans, say, actually do believe that. And I would say they're basically right about that. And I would point, first of all, to the education premium, that people who get better educated do actually do better. Now, whether they're in control of their ability to get educated is a more complicated issue. But then people who at the upper income actually do work many, many hours longer a year than people at the lower income. So do you fundamentally think the, the economy is so broken that e even with those individual efforts that you can't get ahead and that you're not in control of your destiny? Let, let me, uh, I, I didn't mean to say it's true. U.S., all the polls show, U.S. people believe that uh, they're more in control and the Europeans tend to believe that uh, forces outside have a greater influence. I am convinced that in the next decade that will shift seriously because of the um, more pervasive effects of global economic integration and the way that rapid technological change is sort of altering the, the trajectory of people right. in, the, uh, in the modern economy. But what I, so what I, what I meant to say is, look, there's, there's always a combination of individual effort and hard work and then sort of forces outside your control that shape things. And I think that we're at a moment where the political potency of the outside forces is going to create uh, a much broader constituency to make sure that people have some kind of security uh, in a, in a fast-changing world. And I think that the current economic crisis is, is the beginning of that, where people you know, instantly accept that government's going to have to have some kind of bigger emergency role on this. I think what's, what's still up for grabs, and I think the challenge for Obama's leadership, 
is to um, harness this moment to alter the, uh, to, to scrap a bunch of the dead ideas that are holding us back from providing a more robust security for people and uh, a greater opportunity more equitably for the folks who are least well off um, in the years ahead. Well, why don't you go into more detail about that? How th there are many diagnoses probably heard in this room quite a lot of how the global economy is impinging upon individual opportunity. What's, what's your version, your shorthand version? Well, I guess, I guess I think we're at a moment where, you know, it's, and it's not just the global economy, but a bunch of forces are coming together that are going to sort of shake us loose from the old ways of doing things. Um, one of them I call white-collar anxiety in the book, and that's uh, really based on uh, Alan Blinder's and others' work saying that up to 40 million jobs are going to become vulnerable to uh, foreign competition much higher up the income scale than we've typically seen. You know, we see already radiologists and lawyers and uh, 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 you know, increasing kinds of professions where the work can be done as well uh, or effectively and much cheaper in places like India. And I think that trend's only going to accelerate, and that's going um, to create, again, among, amongst a group of increasingly powerful political folks uh, are going to become activated and feel insecure uh, in ways that are new for our politics. It's been hard enough to keep a consensus for open markets and technological change, even as the, the greatest impacts have been felt more at the uh, less skilled level. And I think this is going to be a new dynamic that accelerates in the next decade that's going to make it, um, it's going to just make it incumbent on politicians and our leaders to respond so that people feel more secure amidst this change. Um, you know, at the same time, because so many people are being left behind educationally, I mean, we've got 10 million or so kids uh, languishing in, uh, in these, in these uh, poor urban schools and rural schools who, uh, by the way, we systematically assign to them the least qualified teachers and the shabbiest facilities uh, in America when other countries would never tolerate this inequity. Even conservatives in other countries think it's shocking, the, the, the kind of uh, financial inequity that we have between, uh, between school districts in the U.S., which is a function of the dead idea of uh, this radical localism that we have. But I think at the same time, if we know that there's a skill premium uh, in economic life and that the, the more technology sort of filters its way through the economy, the more your, uh, you know, Clinton's famous line, you know, what, what you earn can depend on what you can learn, then we're sort of setting up a whole other rising class of disadvantaged folks who are not going to be able to get a toehold to rise in the new economy. So you put, you put all that stuff together, and I just think it spells a... Um, it just spells a moment of much more tumult and will create a backlash against the kind of traditional capitalism and innovation and dynamism in our economy that we've enjoyed. And we don't want to lose that. I mean, I'm a, uh, you know, while, you know, when, when, when uh, I, I'm out peddling the book to conservatives, I'm typically called a socialist. But I view myself as an ardent capitalist who's trying to figure out how can we make sure that there's a sufficient amount of security in a changing world so that we have a consensus, we retain the consensus for, um, for a dynamic economy that in the long run does benefit us all and also stops the kind of protectionist backlash that I think will uh, actually then doom much of the world to dollar-a-day poverty because um, you know, one of the challenges for progressives that I try and touch on in the book is that um, you know, while if you're, if you're, from the point of view of a labor leader in the U.S., the threat posed by um, you know, the rise of India and China is serious because it poses a, a risk to the living standards of a lot of working Americans. But from the point of view, if you're a progressive from a global point of view, the fact that we're lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in places like India and China is a fantastic thing for humanity. And so from that point of view, the, the key is how do you 
how do you make people feel comfortable enough in the wealthy societies who are going to face these wage strains uh, and make them feel secure enough and have a good life while not uh, you know, killing the, the, the global capitalism goose that can help lift the rest of humanity? Now, in my view, you've, you've mushed together two different uh, narratives of where globalization, or what at least the economic strains. The first narrative is the globalization narrative, which is that our chief threat to our jobs is these rising powers overseas, which lower our wages, which lead to outsourcing, which lead to more insecurity. And the natural answer to that is a sort of labor market reform, either this country or globally. The second narrative uh, is what you could call the technological narrative, that the chief cause of our economic anxiety, the chief cause of anxiety, is that jobs are getting more cognitively demanding. And that would be happening if China and India didn't exist. That would be happening if only our, if only our competitors were in China or were in Germany or Canada. And if you take that narrative, then your emphasis is less on reorganizing the labor markets, which probably you don't want to do, but human capital policies to bring everybody up educationally. And the rub is, do you believe that by improving education alone without changing the global market, labor markets, you can actually enhance opportunity and social mobility? Um, I guess I think I'm talking about both in the book. I try, I try and be careful uh, all the time. My, basically, my mantra is that what's going on is a function of global competition and rapid technological change. And to me, you know, when, it, when, I, when I shorthand what I call the opportunity agenda, that's the whole human capital agenda. And I'm focused mostly on, uh, because we've got so many millions of poor kids who are essentially dooming right now in the way we're setting things up. But the truth is, I think that the middle class parents don't realize that the education system isn't getting middle class kids to where they need to be. You know, if you look at all the, um, all the statistics, we're uh, spending more than most other wealthy nations, and we score in the middle or the middle to the bottom of the pack on a lot of these international comparisons. So, just like with healthcare, we have this radically inefficient, ineffective uh, system today, which is one of our hugest challenges. So, I, I think the human capital agenda is a whole big piece of that on the technology side. But then I think, uh, by the same token, we can't deny, and I think while to date the globalization, the, the global competition and the kind of effective wage cap from overseas has not affected tons of jobs. I believe, and I know there's a debate about this, but I believe that there's no question it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect many, many, many more jobs higher up the income scale in the years ahead. And so what I, what I want to argue in the book is to get out front of that because we don't want a backlash that leads to protectionism, because I think that's the, it's already happening on the Democratic side, that we need to make sure we have in place the health care and pension security in particular, uh, not linked to jobs so that, you know, it's not a catastrophe for you and your family when you, when you, it's a catastrophe enough when you lose your job, but the idea that then you're, you know, uncovered and you'll go bankrupt if you're sick in a wealthy society like the U U.S. is, it's not just wrong, which I think it is as a, as a question of justice, but it's insane for capitalists who want to preserve a consensus for, uh, for open markets. So I, I try and hit both. I think, mm -hmm. I, I think I'm focused on, I don't see them as either or. I actually think they're both uh, totally related parts of the agenda we need. Now, when I'm reading the book, I was, of course, in my sociological manner, was uh, pinning you down like a butterfly as an example of a social trend and de <laughs> dehumanizing you in that way. Uh, but, but, and I, I don't think I'm totally wrong about this, that I think there are a lot of people, and I, I think I would include you, and I would include Blinder, I might include Larry Summers, I might include a, a lot of people who I associated with a lot of the, the centrist Clinton economics, the centrist Democratic Clinton economics, uh, have moved, I think, because of some of the strains you talk about in the book, have moved to a more aggressive stance about a lot of these issues. Uh, 
but the and the question is is there now a merger between that camp uh, which tends to be more professional and frankly more upper middle class and the labor camp in the Democratic Party and clearly the gaps between those two camps are much narrower than they were uh, in the past the one gap that I think still remains is that when you ask Democratic donor or fundraisers uh, you guys are raising hundreds of millions of dollars from very rich people do they mind the tax increases that they're about to get and the, the fundraisers all say no we don't really they don't seem to mind the the tax increases, what they hate is card check. And that thing, I think, is the, the one, one clear distinction between the sort of summer's camp and the labor camp. Now, what about you? Do you, have, do you when you look at some of the labor economists or the Jared Bernsteins, or, or do you see a difference between your views and their views? Um, to, to some extent, but just to, just to avoid being pinned down like a sociological butterfly, <laughs> I was in, in the Clinton years. I mean, I, I wrote that book coming out of the Clinton years, The 2% the, the Solution, and I was, I admire the Clintons and served there the first couple of years, but he never, you know, the, Clinton had two years on offense and six years on defense. And the affirmative phase of his presidency ended after the 94 blowout. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, except for, uh, you know, modest steps on children's health care, on the earned income tax credit, which was a big achievement back then. I thought that the agenda was, for political reasons, it was just entirely muted in terms of going beyond the left and the right of what the debate was then. So I, I guess I, at least I, I think I've been trying to uh, uh, go bigger on some of that stuff for a while. In terms of the difference between labor, it's a great question. I think um, I, I'm definitely more in the, um, it, it, uh, Andy Stern, I'm a huge fan of Andy Stern and what he's tried to do to revitalize the labor movement and in particular the way he's tried to force business leaders into the public square to be a, a force, a constituency for the kind of changes we need. I think, um, I think that going for things like the Employee Free Choice Act will so poison the well if that gets pushed aggressively for things like universal health coverage because it will just lead to a knockdown, uh, you know, it, it'll be, it, there'll be a, you know, a decimating fight on both sides and I worry uh, a little bit under the influence of some of the revisionist histories or at least fresh looks of the depression stuff like Amity Schles and others have done that if you're trying to it, 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 especially we're in a moment of economic crisis now if you try and artificially raise wages at the bottom as opposed to making sure that you have um, very robust mega earned income tax credits so that folks who are unskilled still end up at ten or eleven dollars an hour but not putting the full burden of that on employers when it doesn't make economic sense for a business like that that will end up um, hampering our efforts to avoid a really deep recession. So, um, I, so I suppose that for folks like Jared and I, there might be some differences on that. But I think in terms of you know major efforts for universal health coverage and in what I think are a market-friendly way, much bigger uh, 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 subsidies to achieve a living wage for uh, folks who are at the working poor today, um, bigger efforts on education. I think there's a I think there's a tremendous simpatico, and we'll see how. I think you're right. The flashpoint may be the uh, the, the card check thing. Right. I'm going to ask you about the stimulus in a second, but let me. Uh, there's one one of your dead ideas which I just wanted to get to for a second, which was the local control of schools, which you mentioned briefly. We have a school uh, superintendent here, Michelle Ree, who is controversial. Some of us love her, some don't. Uh, in New York, Joel Klein, in Colorado, for coming incoming senator Michael Bennett. Uh, a lot of reform takes place at the local level from fantastic superintendents. What do you mean by ending local control or diminishing it? Well, the, the, it, the way I put the dead idea is that schools are a local matter. That's the dead idea. And by that, I mean you know, we're the only country in the world that essentially says 15,000 local school districts should 
be calling most of the shots on funding and on sort of what is taught. Now, in recent years, that's been augmented by a crazy patchwork of 50 separate states. But the, to me, the, the damage that's done by that is first, uh, we have the most grossly inequitable system of school financing in the world, bar none. Um, and so, you know, folks know there's just dramatic differences in what uh, typically backs poor kids and typically uh, is, is uh, funding the education for for affluent suburban kids and the outliers like Washington DC or Newark, New Jersey, I think are distracting exceptions. There, there's been so much money going at the top, of course there's a case for not putting more in until you figure out how to clean house. But that's that's not really the, the bulk of the situation. In most, uh, in most, if you go to most high poverty urban areas and compare them to their nearby affluent suburbs, the suburbs spend thousands and thousands of dollars more and while money's not everything, uh, it's it's a clear factor in what makes the best teachers in the country go to the best suburban schools over time. And so I think that's, um, and we're doing that as a matter of public policy by following an idea of local, you know, local funding that made perfect sense in the 19th century when it got started because uh, back in those days we weren't segregated into all these separate wealth, you know, districts by socioeconomic class and you had the wealthy family on the hill and the merchants, you know, in town and the poorer folks and they all paid property taxes because that was the main form of wealth and they, they had access to the same public schools. Today, it just doesn't make sense. And um, between, between the funding inequity and the lack of national standards, which you know in, in some quarters is considered a bugaboo, but I think we will never get where we need to go uh, to compete in a global economy unless we have a nationally defined set of what kids, you know, whether they're in Birmingham or Boston, ought to know. And that's not different from saying that you know, wonderful crusading leaders at the local level, and I've, in my professional life, had the, the, the privilege of working with some of these folks in different, uh, in different districts. But the problem is, the, and superintendents will tell you this, they can't control the levers that matter most. The thing that they most need to do, that's what, why Michelle, what Michelle Rhee is doing that's so important now, is if you think, like I do, and I did, talked about this in the 2% solution, that we have to dramatically change the trajectory of income for the teaching profession if we're going to recruit and retain a new generation of uh, teachers to our toughest classrooms, they don't have the budget to even deal with that. So what their, their whole agenda on teacher quality has to be, how do we improve the folks we got? How do we improve at the margin who comes in? And they're doing you know, incredible yeoman's work on that. But you need a higher level of government to change the financing equation. You've got to address the financing equity if you're going to try and fundamentally change how a college student views the attractiveness of teaching as a career. Michelle Rhee is the only person, who, in my view, who has a serious a plan on the table to try and do that. And, uh, and I really hope right. that she succeeds. But if you nationalize the funding stream, wouldn't you nationalize the decision structure? No, I don't think so. I mean, you've got, you, sure, there's, there'll be more influence that comes with federal money, but there's plenty of strings coming now. And I'm not saying go to 100% federal funding, which is, by the way, what most of the, uh, what many of our uh, competitors do. But you have, um, you know, if we're at 9% on the, on the national dollar today coming from the feds, I like the Nixon plan of going to 25 to 30%. You know, when I was doing the research for this, it turned out he came very close to proposing what was, you know, going to be his education masterstroke and sort of lift the federal role in this to address these equity issues and also maybe buy down some of the local taxes which would make it a win for uh, local officials. So if you took the federal share up from 9 to 25 or 30 percent, you'd have enormous possibilities. You could have Michelle replans being implemented in, you know, dozens of major districts and you'd fundamentally change in five years the quality of teachers you had, I think, teaching poor kids, which would be great for the country. Okay, let's, um, you're writing this book, uh, the Obama, I don't know when you finished, when your deadline was, but Presumably the Obama campaign, maybe the Obama victory had occurred and you had all these dead ideas and these emerging ideas. Where is he? Does he, uh, 
Does he, did you see him articulating the dead ideas? Did you see him? He, he, he's been busy, obviously. Um, <laughs> the, um, and can I mention at least what the dead ideas are so people know the quick catalog of them? Because if you haven't seen the book, it's, it's the, there are six, there's probably dozens of dead ideas in our public life we could go after. You can go to the website, mattmilleronline.com, and submit your own candidates for dead ideas you'd like to see exploded. But the six I focus on in the book that I think are holding us back in terms of uh, coping with globalization and rapid economic change are, first, the kids will learn more than we do, which is the, uh, you know, the whole idea of upward mobility, which uh, the latest research shows is at risk for, uh, for just huge chunks of the country. We now have research showing that up to 100 million Americans live in families that are earning less than their parents did at, at the same age. And that really is a kind of a crisis for the American dream that I think we have to honestly confront. The second dead idea is uh, the idea that free trade is good, no matter how many people it hurts, uh, which uh, I think the economics profession has done us a disservice by hyping, for political reasons, the case for trade, not being honest enough about its downsides. The answer isn't protectionism, I argue, but to, um, to build in a bigger set of protections in the ways I've talked about for workers here, while not killing the uh, opportunity for the rest of the world to rise. The third dead idea is, um, is uh, your company should take care of you, the whole employer-based system of health care and benefits, which, again, we uniquely have, kind of like with local control. America uniquely administers much of its welfare state through companies. And there's a whole history to that. In each of the chapters of the book, I do a kind of mini-biography of the dead idea, so you see where it came from, why it made sense for a while, and why radical changes in circumstances mean that it's, uh, uh, they're now damaging or harmful. And um, uh, the, the whole idea that we have to, that we, if we're going to look outside the family for a measure of security against life's major challenges like illness and old age or poverty, that we should look to our company, not our country, for support. I think when you put it that way, it's a kind of jarring thing, um, and it's a dead idea that needs to be revisited. The fourth dead idea is that taxes hurt the economy, and they're always too high. And when I was on Colbert the other night, he said, right, that's right. What's the dead idea? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but the, and the point there is, even though we're obviously going to cut taxes now to get through this recession in the next couple of years, taxes are going up, no matter who's in power in the next decade, when we double the number of people on Social Security and Medicare. We're not going to become France or Sweden. That's the good news. And the economy will be fine. That's an undiscussable fact in our current politics for reasons you know. But I quote two of John McCain's top advisors in the book explaining why taxes are going up no matter who's in power. So it's not a, uh, uh, it, it's something that uh, we're going to have to deal with. Um, then the, uh, the fifth dead idea is the, uh, the idea that, uh, uh, I'm forgetting my dead ideas. What's my fifth dead idea? Money follows merit. <laughs> I think I hit most of them. I just wanted to make sure people had at least a framework for um, how the book works, which is to lay out these dead ideas and then talk about a set of destined ideas that will replace them over the next decade well, or so. That should have been my first question, but that's why I'm not Charlie Rose. <laughs> uh, so let's get for, back. Forgive me for doing the I was afraid spinal. you were going to uh, say uh, printed newspapers are a dead idea. Which, uh, <laughs> uh, let's get back to His Holiness uh, Obama. Did, did you, you, uh, <laughs> do you sense that he, he is... Uh, I, I, I'm very hopeful and optimistic about him, obviously, uh, and he, you know, we're at a moment where his sensibility, which is to come at things, I think, pragmatically, looking for what works, and to not be bound by old ideas, the whole spirit of his rhetoric throughout the campaign, even in the primary, that he wanted the best ideas from left and right, uh, uh, I, think, I think that's true to where he is. And uh, I think he's got an enormous opportunity to try and explode a bunch of these dead ideas as we go forward. So I think, I think this is just a very exciting moment for all that. Now, uh, just finally, and then we'll open it up for questions. I, I, before I 
came over here, I watched the Obama speech on the stimulus package, and we've all been following how that's come out. And as a matter of ideology, I'm fine with all of his ideas. I think they're, uh, they're reasonably restrained. Uh, there's a, a fair bit, I think, of non-controversial ideas, aid to the states, or should be non-controversial. The tax cut, I think, is reasonably well designed, the electrical power grid. Uh, the question I had while uh, watching the speech, which I'd like to get your reaction to, was that he is asking an awful lot of the political system here to spend. I mean, he's not only picked out a few simple things you can pass quickly. He's picked out some very complicated things, which it is possible to do quite badly. And I, I mean, especially the infrastructure, some of the spending on new technology, energy technology. Uh, I wanted to get your sense, A, of the basic idea of the stimulus, that, as you understand it, and B, the political practicality of it. Is he going to get this through a series of pretty aggressive and pent-up uh, committee chairmen who are going to want to lard it up and do all the other things that normal human beings do? I guess a uh, couple thoughts. Um, first, I think, I think the whole idea is uh, obviously just right. We need, there's, no, there's no one but the government who can step in a, ma in a major way to, stop, to, to halt the collapse in demand and try and jumpstart things. My worry, if anything, is that the stimulus numbers getting talked about are too small because when I... Uh, when you look at, um, you know, CBO has a new report out that talks about the, the, the potential, the gap between actual and potential GDP being 8%. Right. And uh, Krugman had an item yesterday on his blog, uh, you know, talking about the gap between that and the, the stimulus, which may be, you know, 3 or 4% per year, that we may be thinking too modestly, and maybe because the, the administration or the, the incoming group is worried about, you know, just the political optics of how, to, you know, how high we can go, because we know now that if we got a $1.2 trillion deficit before the stimulus, we're looking at one six or one seven. Really? And I, you know, I, you know, I'm an old deficit hawk, but a couple months ago I wrote a column about how I stopped worrying and learned to love trillion dollar deficits. I think we're in a situation where we have to do whatever it takes to lift, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to avoid this downturn. And I think the answer then, which I haven't heard them talk about yet, but I would expect that we'll see when they actually put out their plans in more detail, is some framework. It doesn't have to be all detailed now, but some commitment that once we get unemployment back between back below six percent, say, or five percent, that deficits can't be higher than two to three percent of GDP. Right. You know, because we're going to go off the wall now, and that's what I proposed in a, at least in a couple of pieces in Fortune and, right. and Politico. And you know, you can say yes, that's a you know that's a hollow promise, just like Graham Rubin was in the '80s. They can always break that. But I think you've got to send a strong signal to markets that we know this is a kind of temporary madness, right. but a necessary madness, and right. then um, and then. Uh, but then commit to be able to do that, and then you can get a bipartisan group together to go off and talk about the entitlement stuff. I think that the, the sort of hyperventilating, at least as I took it in the New York Times this morning, maybe on the front page about you know Obama may take on the retirement programs. Well, of course, someone's going to have to take on the retirement programs at some point because it, it's part of the issue. Um, you know, we don't talk yet about we're going to have to take on the the, the fact that taxes are going to have to rise, but that's right. both parties are going to do that at some point also. So, um, but I think for now, all all he has to do is put together a a framework and uh, you know commit to a framework and then get get a bipartisan group to go off and start working on how, how we might be able to find a consensus on this. Right. I did think it was in interesting that he mentioned entitlement reform would be central, which he didn't really in the campaign. No. Um, okay. Uh, questions for Matt? Uh, comments? More uh, expletives would be welcomed. Thank you. Uh, would appreciate it if you could address the issues we talk about. Um, President-elect Obama's push to increase uh, the economy and what have you. And then we heard after 9-11, President Bush didn't ask us to stop spending. 
now we're asked to keep spending. Where's the balance? How do we pay back the borrowed money and the loans that President-elect Obama is going to have to deal with tax increases? I, I don't hear any um, balance here except keep spending, America. We, 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 you don't have to feel any pain, but we've got a lot of pain and a lot of borrowed money. So could you address that issue? Thank I think you. it's sort of a it's a near-term versus a long-term question. I mean, first of all, I think there's a lot of pain going on right now in the economy. We know that. And I think, I just think the simple, you look at the economics, and if consumers, if, you know, if consumer demand is collapsed, if business investment and businesses are pulling back, you've only really got government who can step in to try and fill that gap right now. And we've got to figure out what the right magnitude is and try and do it smartly. You know, the, you know, the idea that there won't be a penny wasted, boy, that's a great ideal but at this point we just gotta you gotta get money into the system to try and make sure that we don't have a further kind of spiraling down and then you know in the in the longer term it's funny because uh, there, there used to be this that you know Cheney said famously to Paul O'Neill I think that you know Reagan proved deficits don't matter and when that's prime. what you just said five minutes ago yes well in the, in the near term it, in the near term it doesn't that that I've evolved on absolutely because I used to be kind of a real uh, sort of deficit fundamentalist so there's no question I've changed on that and I think pragmatically and the the to me the only practical limit is can we finance you know, how much can we finance at rates that are affordable now when you've got zero percent you know Treasury bonds at this point it looks like a pretty good time for the government to borrow money to try and put it in the economy. That won't last. And again, the Times had a piece this morning about, you know, is China going to balk at holding our Treasury debt? I actually think an answer to that, I haven't done a piece on this yet, but we might as well, instead of just doing the open market, we should just do a big private placement with China. Why can't we just say, you know what, we need, we need about a trillion over the next couple of years. Let's just negotiate an interest rate with them. Why do this through the open market? Let's just cut a deal with them, maybe use some of the money. We could recycle it in a way that sort of uh, built the environmentally sound technologies that we want them to use in all their coal plants and sort of do a, you know, I haven't thought it all through yet, but it's some kind of private placement deal with China so we can take these sort of market-based bond issuance things off the table. So, um, but it, you know, in the longer term, we're gonna have, we got 50 trillion in unfunded liabilities in all these retirement programs now. And that's gonna take a, we're gonna have to slow the growth of spending of those programs. I don't think we're going to cut them but you know what I mean, slow the growth of spending, especially in Medicare and Medicaid. And we're going to have to, but also in Social Security. I'm a progressive who's been open to that, although uh, people even in this room probably don't like me saying that. And there's been, um, and I think we're, gonna, we're, we're going to have higher taxes. That's inevitable. Again, not in the next couple of years, but we're going to, and the, the way, because the math just doesn't work to, to retire the baby boom at current levels of taxation. And if you view it right, it's an opportunity um, to rethink how we tax. And so instead of taxing, you know, I think the right direction for tax reform is to cut taxes on payrolls and corporations and to raise it on dirty energy and consumption. And in, you know, if we move in that direction, um, the, economy, the economy will be fine and we'll find that we have a kind of sustainable trend between what we're spending and what we take in. And I think, you know, I think the debate will have to move towards something like a value-added tax. Larry Summers has this great quip about the value-added tax from a few years ago, which is, you know, he says, we don't have a value-added tax because, uh, because conservatives think it's a money machine and liberals think it's regressive. We will have a value-added tax when liberals realize it's a money machine and conservatives <laughs> realize it's regressive. And, you know, I do think, I mean, every other country in the world except us gets a much bigger share of their total revenue from this. And again, we're not going to become France or Sweden. We don't have to go that high. But we got to go somewhere in terms of the aggregate size of government. We have to go somewhere between where we are now 
and where the kind of Western European and uh, you know uh, 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 Scandinavian countries are. Somewhere in the middle that still leaves us a more like a cowboy capitalist country than some cradle-to-grave nanny state like those places, but that still has a, a sustainable way to fund the opportunity and security that a, a wealthy society should have. Sorry, it's a long answer. A cradle-to-grave cowboy state. Yes. <laughs> That's good. I'll write that down. You should write. <laughs> good afternoon, gentlemen. I wanted to ask you a question about um, immigration relative to our neighbors south of the border since you didn't seem to really address that. You did mention something about outsourcing. And so I wanted to know in your uh, past book or right now if you write about uh, immigration in general and being that DHS is under consideration now we're looking at possibly a new leader coming into DHS and the whole facility may move to southeast DC and there's a lot of talk about that. But what would you say to the new leader about how we should handle the issue of immigration? Is it a moot point? Because one of the jokes seems to be right now that some of the immigrants that have been coming up are thinking about taking a U-turn and going right back down for the time being. So do you feel that that's going to factor into the economy? And, and, and what do you think is uh, pertinent as far as how we should handle our immigration policy? I don't talk about it really much in the book um, because I'm really not an immigration expert, so I don't think I can give you the most thoughtful answer. The one extent that I do cover it is when I talk about the fact that the kids are going to earn less, the kids will earn more than we do being a dead idea now in the U.S., I don't mean that for immigrants. I think by and large, I think it's around 11 12 percent now of the population is immigrant, 88 percent is native born. And we are still, you know, for understandable reasons, the magnet for the world's uh, folks who want to have a chance to build a great life. And and to rise from humble beginnings. I think that that won't change um, because we still have the kind of freedom and dynamism in the country that makes it possible for energetic people to come from all over the world and rise. It may be tougher in a recession right now, uh, which is the point you're, you're referring to. Um, but that for those who are already here, I think that, that that premise of upward mobility kind of automatically, you know, the, the, this faith in the ever-rising tide, is going to be much more challenging in the period ahead. But I, I don't have a, a deep set of well-thought-out stuff on immigration to, uh, to offer. Sir, on the aisle. Uh, Mark Nadell. Uh, Matt, I wanted to follow up on the schools issue. I know you've written about that national versus local. Um, do you feel that equal opportunity is a dead idea? And I ask that because it seems that um, what you'd like to see, a pro the progressive position, would be that the best teachers should be focused on the most difficult to te teach students, the poor, disadvantaged, to help bring them up because that's where they'll have the best, most effect. But the upper middle class, the group in this room, also wants our kids to have good teachers. We don't want below average teachers. But if the disadvantaged don't have below average teachers and we don't have below average teachers and the richest, right, where are the below average teachers? There's actually, there's actually an answer to that. I would be happy to see a bidding war between uh, high poverty districts and the affluent suburbs for the best teachers in the country and I'd, ha I'd be happy to see that raise over time. Remember, we've got about two million teachers in the country, sorry, three million teachers. Uh, and Albert Shankler famously was the one who said, you hire three million of anything, you get a lot of mediocrity. And this is not dissing teachers. I mean, it's, it's teachers, it's great teachers in poor schools who have told me with passion 
how awful so many other colleagues are and how they're blighting the lives of so many kids. So if we can engineer federal policy that makes it possible for the toughest neighborhoods to recruit better talent and the suburbs feel that they need to decide to you know, raise their own wages, I think you can change the composition of the whole teacher labor force over the next decade so that the average talent in the profession just keeps going up. And that's, that would be a great, healthy thing for the U.S. And these are jobs that can't be outsourced. You know, these are, jo these are the kind of things, if teaching became a, a, you know, a, an attractive, a really attractive profession, for better college graduates, you know, today we hire from the, we recruit for, from the bottom third of the college class. This wasn't true, by the way, 35 years ago because the quality of the teacher corps was subsidized by discrimination. Women and minorities didn't have as many opportunities outside the classroom. So, you know, it's great for the country that that changed, but it, we've lost this de facto subsidy for the quality of, uh, of the teacher corps. If we could change the trajectory of the profession so that, you know, a young couple coming out of college knew that if they were good, they could each earn 125000 and they could earn $250,000, say, you know, in a reasonable period of time if they excelled in the classroom. That's, uh, that's two less lawyers. It's not just two, two more <laughs> teachers. And what you're saying, though, is not equal opportunity. It's putting a sufficiently high minimum so that everybody gets at least It's about this lifting the bottom. That's right. It's about okay, lifting it, the bottom, and if those who are above the bottom today feel they need to have some kind of response to that to make sure that they still have the folks they need, then that's, that's great. Right, but that's not, what I'm saying is tweaking this, equal opportunities seem to be that everybody would get the same chance. And are we switching it a little bit for practical purposes to just, we want everybody to get at least some high minimum level of chance? I guess I think equal opportunity is kind of an ideal. And I don't think there's any way to, uh, you know, scientifically make sure that Every kid has uh, an equal chance. But we know, I'm just being pragmatic, we know today that there are just millions and millions and millions of blameless children who are being, uh, thanks to public policy, are being left behind. And that we can change that. That's a man-made thing that we can choose to change, and it will improve the, the extent to which opportunity is more equal. So, you know, we're always on this journey to a more perfect union. I don't think, that, you know, I don't, we, we may never get there. Just in 30 seconds, how do you measure a good teacher? Um, it's tough. I think it's uh, the best stuff I've seen is a blend, is to try and find some way to include the value add and test scores over a period, but not only that, because, um, because uh, especially in the upper grades, there's a lot of teachers. So I, I've never understood exactly, and we have greater experts at CAP who can probably explain this, but I, I've always been a little baffled by how past the elementary grades when there's basically one teacher, you can sort of attribute that to one person, but then also have, um, there's a system called the uh, uh, Teacher Advancement, what, Teacher, it's TAP from the Milken Foundation, I'm just blanking on what the name for, but it's a combination of, 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 of principal reviews, teacher peer reviews and observations, and some measure of test scores, because that has to be part of it, value advancement in test scores that can uh, that we can reach a consensus on. I think I think that's actually doable. It's not beyond the mind of man. It won't be perfect. Nothing's perfect, um, but we can do better than we're doing now. Let's reward merit and get the two gentlemen standing in the back. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, you had uh, talked about, my name is Chris Myers, Ash, and uh, you had talked about... Uh, oh, you're sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. yeah. <laughs> you had talked about the the possibility of, of of a new progressive era as this this resentment grows, and and there's all this talk about how many young people are now excited about government service and so forth. And so I wanted to to 
see if you think the time is right to create a, an actual national institution to to recruit and develop uh, young people who will commit to, to serving in the government, something akin to a, a West Point, but for civilian public service. Who was in the New York Times yesterday? Yeah, that, yeah, that, was, that I, was me. That seems like a great idea. And I saw a blue, you must have had a working paper that went to a colleague of mine in my McKinsey life that got circulated around. And that always struck me as a good idea. So I applaud you. And I'm here to say, I hope that you can get traction on this. Thanks. Did that do what you wanted? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now the gentleman next to you, do you, do you also have a? Okay, then how about this gentleman? An unplanned I, endorsement. I like some of the items of, in your list. Uh, I, I am thinking that the individual items are okay, but what about the generalization in attitude, in values, that condenses all these things in one single idea? Like capitalism can be humanistic, communitarian, that uh, human beings are not just resources, but have emotions, and can have artistic and creativity uh, uh, contributions to art and to themselves. Uh, that education is not just math and English, but it uh, has many components, like under understanding your neighbor, understanding the emotions of other people, uh, uh, and one word I don't want to use is compassionate. That was kind of misused uh, in the last few years because uh, it's kind of paternalistic. What I'm thinking is about the rights as human beings to be accepted in our totality. I think that's a, I think that's a great aspiration. And I'm, I think, you know, progressive capitalism, I'm, I'm sure there's someone better than me can come up with the right handle for that, but I think, uh, I think that's a great, great way to go. Well, let me. Uh, is there, you know, you is there a philosopher that you think you draw these ideas out of, whose approach to life you draw these ideas out of, or? Well, uh, it's funny. This is more from the the last book I wrote, where I sort of try, try to think this stuff through. But I, I really tried, have tried to, in a way, reconcile John Rawls and Milton Friedman, and I actually think that's totally possible to do because it's about making capitalism work in a way that is progressive, and and not just progressive over the long term, the way Milton Friedman talked about, that you know, over time this is the thing that's done the most wealth and betterment for, for man in human history. Because I always think that lets conservatives off too easily with regard to people who, through no fault of their own, are suffering now. You know, saying that things will be great in the next century, which is often what I hear uh, you know, the, the conservative side making the case for capitalism, is, is too easy morally. Um, and if you reconcile Rawls and Friedman, which I think you can do, at least to me, that's sort of the, um, you know, and then try and figure out how pragmatically we would go about doing that. That's, uh, again, not to be too grand about this, but that's, uh, if I had to try and say what I hoped I was trying to do, that would be it. Okay. Uh, maybe the young lady. That's a fancy here in the pants middle. answer. That's impressive. Rolls and Friedman. It's very Clintonian. Obamian. <laughs> um, Obamian. Um, my question is a little bit about the fixation on the short term. Um, which has gotten us in so much trouble. These dead ideas that you're talking about, there were obviously once vibrant ideas that helped us out, like historically, circumstantially vibrant ideas. And just in the natural process of um, historical dialectics, your ideas will one day inevitably also be less than fresh and appropriate. And how have you taken that into consideration? Question, and what we've done is I'm offering a 10-year warranty on these new ideas. <laughs> 
so that if any time these ideas are not working for you, you bring it back and I'll, I'll fix it, or if I can, I will replace it with an entirely new idea. They actually degrade in the book. The, the ink fades as the... <laughs> um, it, it's a good question, and I, I'm doing the best I can to say where I think, I think things need to head, or actually where they're... Unlike my previous book, when I talk about the destined ideas in this book, can I take one second and just say, I mean, the destined ideas are things like only government can save business, only business can save liberalism, only higher taxes can save the economy and the planet, only a dose of nationalization can save local schools, only better living can save sagging paychecks, and only uh, lessons from abroad can save American ideals. Those are the destined ideas I talk about. I'm not trying to say I want to persuade you that this is the way the country should go. I'm saying that we're at a moment like 1928. If you would ask the average people in 1928, uh, should the federal government have a big role in assuring security against poverty in old age, most people in America would have said no. You know, it's a, we're a nation of rugged individualists, et cetera. In 1940, if you ask that question, people would have said, oh, it's common sense. Of course the federal government has to play some role in that. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have a depression. I don't believe we are. And it's not going to take anything like that to, to, to lead to the changes that I think are, in some ways, inevitable. But I think, similarly, if we, when we look back in 2020, the set of ideas that I just laid out, that I kind of go through in the book, even though they sound paradoxical, that's why I kind of put them, I sort of stated them as paradoxes now, I think in 2020, we'll look back and say, hmm, why didn't it seem obvious that this is the way that history was headed? Because I think the pressure of events between the continuing acceleration of uh, global economic integration and the continuing impact of rapid technological change, both, is going to force these changes in, uh, in the national mindset. Uh, maybe one more, maybe right here. We'll, we'll do two quick ones. Sociologically, like my friend David Brooks? Yes, sociologically. Um, on trade and trade issues, you mentioned that we need to, you know, keep the borders open, but that we need to do something more for the American worker. What is it that you think we need to do more for the American worker? We should you? have some kind of universal health coverage. For sure. So that it's not tied to a job. It may take us some ways to get there, and we can evolve to it. It doesn't have to happen overnight. But every person has to have access uh, to uh, some kind of decent Chevrolet. Maybe Chevy's the wrong word to use these days. But <laughs> yeah. Some kind Talk of decent. Talk about a dead idea. I know. So <laughs> I realized that. You realized that already. Kind of the things that you're used to saying. You know, some kind of decent, uh, you know, Nissan uh, health coverage. Uh, in a way that's not tied to employment and where it's not left to the individual market. John McCain had it right that we should move past the employer-based system, but he had it totally wrong that we should be left to the tender mercies of the individual market. My wife and I found out a few years ago, you couldn't get, if, you, if you've had any bump in the road or no bump in the road economically, you're not going to be able to get health coverage in the individual market. That's not the fault of the insurers, by the way. It's just the way insurance doesn't work individually. So um, basic health coverage, a much greater sense of pension security because private pensions have eroded dramatically and the government can do. Lots of cap proposals are out there for universal IRAs where the government can match people and help them save. So it's health and pension security um, are, are the basics. I would say much more uh, generous uh, unemployment assistance than we have today. It doesn't have to be so generous that like in some other countries people never want to go back to work. But we're at the way other end of that spectrum now where basically I think it's around a third of the people who are affected, you know, get decimated by this job loss. Maybe there's wage insurance during the transitions that's also gotten talked about, but those would be some of the key components I think we need to do for, uh, for folks who are affected by uh, trade or, or economic change okay. broadly. Sure. Okay, just in the spirit of keeping promises, let's do one more quick question. If you could give a 30-second sure. woman in purple. Like no, I, I met the woman in purple. <laughs> I've got a... I, wanted to do, I wanted you to talk more about health care, and you did. 
continue to talk more about how do you think we're going to get there economically in health care? How are we going to rearrange it? I think the biggest thing that has to happen is that business leaders needed to be persuaded to be a constituency for shifting the focus of health coverage from being a private sector you know, employer burden to something that government plays a bigger role in. I spent a lot of time in the book trying to talk about why, you know, why it started this way, um, why it may have made sense then and why it worked. But you know, now, it, you know, health costs were minor when this, when this deal was cut some decades ago. And we haven't revisited this, even though, uh, e even though uh, employers now spend more on health care than they do on, uh, than they earn in profits. You know, GM spends more on health care than on steel. Starbucks spends more on health care than on coffee. And while these companies can tell you everything about the coffee and steel they buy, they can't tell you a thing about what they're getting for the uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars they're doing in health care. And yet, it's a big, I mean, this, this dead idea is really uh, most, it's most potent in the business mind. And I try and spend a lot of time proselytizing to business leaders that they need to be open to, I think it's a kind of, it's a combination of a fear of um, if they say they want to get out of this business, that they'll be criticized by the unions and others and employee groups for dumping their responsibilities, when in fact, business leaders need to be encouraged to come together as a group to say, we've got to shift these costs. Doesn't mean we're going to have a Canadian-style, single-payer healthcare system. We need a market-based universal health coverage system that's uh, not unlike what's been done in Switzerland and Holland. The whole, you know, socialist uh, canard is just that. It's a canard. And, um, but it's going to take some business leaders coming together to, to uh, get out of the old mindset that says they have to cling to it. I mean, it's kind of weird. It's like they're, essentially today they're saying, you know, whatever you do, you know, Uncle Sam, don't don't help me get out of this mess that's killing us today. I mean, I think our business leaders have enough to do trying to compete with China and India. We don't have to have them run the American welfare state as well. Okay, thank you, Matt. I'll just say two final things. One, everyone should buy Tyranny of Dead Ideas. Aside from the brilliant living ideas in it, it's published by Times Books, so a portion of the proceeds presumably go to my salary. <laughs> uh, and let's not forget his most lasting idea to feel sorry for people who are merely driving 300 series BMWs the lower uppers who are feeling bad because there are so many people about driving 700 series. Uh, thank you, Matt. Thank you.